0: ever since my view in early 2020 of becoming more firmly bullish it seems odd to me not to have say 1% in bitcoin because the market cap right now is fluctuates between 1 and 1 and 200 billion but gold's market cap is like 10 trillion based on estimates for how much gold above ground gold exists in the world and what its current price is it's like roughly 8 9 10 trillion bitcoin is still a small market cap it's still very low investor allocation to bitcoin gold is like a large cap store of value bitcoin is a smaller cap speculative store of value so it's not hard to see bitcoin eventually hitting a one trillion dollar market cap and it's not my you know i'm not saying it will but i'm saying i wouldn't be utterly shocked if one day it did
1: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been a chance to refine my own investment framework through a series of conversations with extraordinary investors in every corner of the world. In this series, I, along with my co-host Robert Carver and Moritz Siebert, want to continue our education by digging deeper into the minds of some of the thought leaders when it comes to how the world economy and global markets really work, to try and learn how they think. We want to understand the experiences that have shaped them the processes they follow and the historical events that have influenced them. We also want to ask questions outside our normal rules-based playground. We're not looking for trade ideas or random guesses about an unknown future, but rather knowledge accumulated over the course of decades in the markets to try and make us better informed investors. And we want to share those conversations with you. Our guest today is absolutely brilliant when it comes to removing financial noise and filtered down into precise and actionable information. So I'm convinced you will enjoy our conversation with Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. Lynn, thanks so much for joining us today for a conversation as part of our miniseries Into the World of Global Macro, where we relax our usual systematic or rules-based framework to provide you with a broader context as to where we are in a global and historical framework and perhaps discover some of the trends that may occur in the global markets in the next few months or even years, and ultimately how this will impact all of us as investors and how we should best prepare our portfolio. So we are super excited to dive into many different topics in the next hour or so, not least because you are someone who publishes a lot of great content that is based on detailed data and charts and analysis and history, And you are very generous when it comes to sharing this on Twitter and other platforms. But let me kick it all off with a kind of a 30,000 feet question. And that is just, I would like to know, and we've asked all of the guests in this series the same question to begin with, and just kind of where you think we are in a bigger global macro picture. There has certainly been a lot of people comparing these times to the history uh, different bubbles and 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 of course also back to the 30s and 40s. And I know we're going to come to that uh, for sure. But just for now, at least, sort of when you look at the world right now, what what do you see?
0: So thanks for having me. I'm happy to have this chat. So to answer your question, I kind of view us as bumping into the the high point of two very long term cycles. So one cycle is the long term debt cycle in the U.S. So in addition to the normal five to 10 year business cycle, where credit builds up and then it gets deleveraged and then it builds up again. That tends to compound over the long term, right? So even though it deleverages each time, it never really deleverages back down to the place that it started at, especially as interest rates have declined for about four decades now. They're able to build up more and more leverage as a percentage of GDP and as a percentage of other uh, ways of measuring it. So historically every you know 50 to 100 years, you kind of get to a point where you have a, a much larger deleveraging event and a much larger phase shift in that. So There have been some investors that cover that a lot like Ray Dalio, but there's a lot of basically evidence that we're kind of ever since the great financial crisis and then still in that period now, we're kind of bumping into that high watermark of how much debt you can possibly have in the global economy. The last time we ran into this was back in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. So that's one long-term cycle we're witnessing right now. And then the other one is kind of the current global monetary framework that's very dollar centric. Because in many ways, the world has kind of outgrown that system and yet is still constrained by it. So over the past 50 years that the system has been in place, the U.S. has basically had to run very large trade deficits and has basically had to export its supply chains to facilitate global trade in dollars and to maintain the global reserve status for the dollar. But now the globe is kind of entered a peak stage of globalization and seems to be pulling back. And uh, so much accumulated trade deficits has resulted in the U.S. having a very negative net international investment position and has really decreased its ability to manufacture things. And we've really kind of bumped into that over the past several years. So we're kind of watching these two kind of really long-term cycles start to run into the ceiling here.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's quite interesting, right? Because when I mentioned to our previous guests this thing about that, you know some people are comparing this to the 30s like as you say Ray Dalio certainly one of the more vocal people for a while and 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 you know the way he lays out his his playbook but a lot of these people have kind of pushed back a little bit and say yeah you can always find um, similarities to these periods but then i ran into some of your recent research where you make a really really compelling case about the 30s and the 40s and how you compare that to the 2010s and the 20s. So if you don't mind, take us into that comparison, because I think, I really think all of our listeners will benefit a lot to hear how you line that up and and why we need to pay attention.
0: Sure. And yeah, so every one of these cycles, there's always differences. There's that common phrase that history repeats. It doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. So that's kind of what we're seeing now. It's not identical. Like Point by point, as it is to the 1930s and 40s, but it's got a lot of similarities. And there's generally certain patterns to how this plays out, even though it's a little bit different every time. So if we go back, starting with the 1920s, we had a really big credit cycle buildup, a huge accumulation of credit for a couple of decades there. And it really kind of culminated in the 19, late 1920s when we had, of course, the famous uh, market crash and the beginning of the Great Depression. And during that period, Private debt as a percentage of GDP reached all time highs. Federal debt was still pretty low in the US because we had a, we had a more lean government back then. So we, had a, we still had pretty low federal debt, but private debt had reached extraordinarily high levels. And so as we entered the 1930s, we had a huge deleveraging event. And banks, they didn't have FDIC insurance and things like that. So many banks failed, and the broad money supply actually went down by about a third. So the amount of basically broad money in the system went down. So we had a really big deflationary shock. Official in deflation levels went to 10%. So instead of inflation every year, they had a really big deflationary impact. Prices went down. And the way that they kind of got out of that was that they devalued their currency significantly. So they depegged uh, the dollar from worth about 1 of an ounce of gold to about 1 35th of an ounce of gold. And then they printed a ton of money. They did a ton of infrastructure programs. They increased federal debt. So we had this big expansion in the monetary base and a big increase in federal debt. And then eventually we worked down the private debt, but not really in nominal terms, mostly in real terms. So they basically devalued the dollar so much that they reduced the, the private debt as a percentage of GDP. So the 1930s, even though, so we had, we started with a really big deflationary shock. And then we had this inflationary response to it. And it mostly balanced out. It was not a period of high inflation, right? It was just a big deflationary period and then some degree of reflation. Now, by the 1940s, the private debt bubble was mostly worked off. But then, of course, when we entered the World War II period, we had massive deficits, uh, federal deficits as a percentage of GDP. They got up to 20, 30%. And so we had this huge fiscal spend. We had a really strong rise in federal debt, up to over 100% of GDP. And that ended up being inflationary, right? Because we had supply shortages and certain materials, and we had just massive deficits. And in order to fund those deficits, the Federal Reserve had to partner with the Treasury, right? Because there wasn't enough natural appetite for the public to buy all those Treasuries. So the Federal Reserve did something. It was basically quantitative easing, even though they didn't call it then back then. The, that's, that's our new term for it. Basically, the Federal Reserve bought Treasuries. They printed dollars. They bought Treasuries and they actually did formal yield curve control. So they said, okay, we'll buy as many treasuries as we need to in order to keep the yields at 2.5% or less. So throughout a whole decade, the whole 1940s, treasury yields were locked under 2.5%. But inflation at some years went into double digits for a period of time. We had a pretty kind of staggered inflationary environment. So anyone who invested in treasuries over that, that decade they made money in nominal terms, right, because they got about two 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 and a half percent a year. So by the end of the decade, they got a little over 25 percent. But their purchasing power in real terms diminished because it failed to keep up with CPI inflation. And that's actually how they managed to reduce their federal debt as a percentage of GDP, because even though they never actually decreased the nominal amount of debt, they locked the yield curve below inflation rate and they kind of inflated away a lot, a lot of that debt. So. If we look fast forward all the way to the Great Financial Crisis, right? We had a similar event to the 1929 period, where we had a massive buildup, taking decades to do in the private sector. So we reached total debt levels that were even slightly bigger than back in 1929, and so we had this huge deleveraging event, where we had, you know, a lot of people lose their homes, we had some banks go under, and then a lot of that debt was kind of moved up to the federal level. So the federal government went into that crisis with about 65 percent debt to GDP. But by the end of that crisis, we were up to over 100% of debt to GDP. So a lot of that leverage was pushed up to the sovereign level. And then for several years, we've had a very disinflationary environment because even though we've had kind of inflationary policy response in the form of QE, a lot of that just went to recapitalize banks. And we had, it was offset by a lot of that deleveraging, especially in the consumer market. Mm -hmm. But as we went into this crisis, we had corporate debt build up again. We have federal debt at 106% of GDP. And Now, with COVID happening and the economic shutdown, we have deficits that are as large as they were, roughly, in World War II. So we're running 20, 30 percent deficits because you know we're already at like 20 percent deficit, and the year's not over yet. They're still talking about more fiscal, so we don't know what the final number is going to be. So we're running very large deficits, and this isn't going to go away in a year or two. Even if, even as things start to recover, the amount of joblessness means that the tax base is is damaged. The amount of stimulus that they have to do to kind of keep people afloat is is higher. So we're going to see deficits that are very large for several years. And so it's it's kind of mimicking, in my opinion, a lot like the 1940s, where we see we've already kind of worked off a private debt bubble. And now we're kind of working with uh, sovereign debt bubbles, both in the US and elsewhere in the world.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a very, very logical way of, of comparing things for sure. Um, but as you say, of course, it's never going to be exactly the same. And we certainly know that from from our world as well rob what's on your mind today
2: yeah it's a very neat comparison and uh the, the fact that the dates work so well from uh you know 19, 1929 being a bit like 2008 and we're sort of yeah. 10 years on from that in the same way that the, the, the 1940s was 10 years on from yeah from 1929 I mean, obviously that there are there are some differences right so i i guess the way that the economy was affected by the war is quite different from how the economy has been affected by COVID. That's the first thing. But the second thing is interest rates. So I think um, the 1940s, like US 10 years, was you, you actually gave us a figure, they're about 10, 2.5%. Um, and now we're, we're, we're about 70 basis points. So we're, we're, we're somewhere below that. And actually, I did a kind of quick back of the envelope calculation. And I'm, I'm I multiplied the interest rates in 1930 by the 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 federal government debt over GDP ratio, and then I did the same calculation today, and that's kind of a very vague proxy for sort of the debt burden on the federal government as in terms of interest payments, and that came out scarily almost exactly the same number So that intuitively, the the interest rate being lower is kind of compensating at least on the federal government side for the for the um, debt GDP ratio being higher, and I guess the other thing is that we hope that people have learned stuff, right? So If your analysis is correct, I'm sure it is, it took about 10 years, at least 10 years, before the Fed started doing something a bit like QE after 1929, whereas, of course, this time around, they started doing something a bit like QE relatively quickly after 2008. So you talk about similarities, which is striking. What what about those differences and how how do they affect how this may play out?
0: Sure, yeah, there are several differences. One is uh, that we have a very different demographic situation now. So we have a slower growing and more aged population. So all else being equal, it can be harder to get those higher inflation levels that we saw in the 1940s. Also, we don't at the current time hopefully have a a war, a hot war. So we have more of a kind of a cold war a little bit, sort of a a decoupling, economic decoupling. Another thing, though, that's different is that this time we have a, a federal, very high federal debt and very high private debt at the same time. So back then we had kind of one after the other. First, we had a private debt bubble. Then we had a federal debt bubble, so they worked them off kind of separately a decade apart. Whereas in this time, we had a partial deleveraging 10 years ago, particularly in the housing, the consumer segment, but we did not have a deleveraging really in the corporate sector. And then, of course, we've had an increase in the the federal sector. So at the current time, overall public and private debt to GDP is very high. If you combine all sources of debt, something like 350% of GDP, if you look at federal debt and private debt. Basically, we have a larger debt problem to work through, but we also have a more diversified economy. We have uh, slower demographics. And one thing that can make somewhat of a comparison to World War II is that back then we had supply shortages, right? So we had a lot of materials used for the war. One thing we're finding ourselves in now is that because of our globally diversified supply chains, we already have some shortages. So like, we, we didn't we had a shortage of masks, for example, at a critical time when we needed masks. And we've had the U.S. military been raising concerns for a while now where they have components that are made in China. So that's, it's not, imagine like if if we were during the Cold War and we had Russia making some of our components, it's not, it's not a situation you want to be in. And actually during the recent China and India conflict, right? So they've had some border squabbles and India's, India's got a lot of their military equipment uh, and other, uh, their systems that are kind of gotten from China. So It's kind of a really interesting situation where if they're trying to resource supply chains and try to avoid having those supply chains in cheaper places in the world, that can be inflationary if they try to bring some of those supply chains home, which can be higher cost, but can be more resilient. So we have kind of situations where it it rhymes in some ways, but we have uh, pretty stark differences as well.
3: So Lynn, how do you think, I mean, this may sound like the million dollar question, but how do you think we'll get out of this? Because- there's obviously the deflationary forces that you've just mentioned, one of them being demographics, right? The other one being the virus and the economic environment and all of that. But then when we look back on fiat currencies, you know, one observation is that essentially all of the fiat currencies that still exist, many of them don't exist anymore. They're long forgotten. But those that still exist, they've all devalued. So it it seems to me, and, and, and I may be the uninitiated here, but... The feeling that I think people get, myself included, is that there's more and more debt, more and more federal debt, more and more private debt. Interest rates at zero. There's more QE, QE forever, QE infinity, this, that, and the other thing. There's a new trick pulled out of the head every single time. And I guess at some point, this may be completely wrong, but maybe the end game is they will, they being the Fed, any central bank, they will at some point succeed in generating inflation. Well, our behavior will succeed in generating inflation because we think differently about the world or supply chains break. And uh, it's kind of like a different behavior of people in the economies. And then the thing that has happened so many times before happens again, which is inflation. And that's the solution, quote unquote, solution to the problem rather than a default.
0: Yeah. So I my base case is that we're going to see higher inflation in the 2020s now exactly how high will depend on a lot of variables. So just like how the 1940s are more inflationary than the 1930s, I think we're going to see a high probability that the 2020s are more inflationary than the 2010s. And a big reason for that is because back in the in the 2010s, a lot of this QE that they did mostly went to recapitalize the banking system. So banks went into that crisis with about 3% cash as a percentage of assets, right? Because we, we had deregulated the financial system. So we had very low cash levels. So part of the way that they got out of that crisis was the Federal Reserve created a, do- a bunch of dollars, and they bought assets from those banks. So they, after the first round of QE, banks were brought up to about 8% cash levels as a percentage of assets. And by the time that QE3 ended around 2014, banks had 15% cash as a percentage of assets. And they slowly worked that down over several years. They got down to about 7%. That's when we had the Repo crisis last year in September. And ever since then, we've, we they've been treading water. And in, in this most recent QE, that was brought up to 15% cash again by the, the Fed. Now, back then, that's where most of the QE winded up. It went into the treasuries, it went into mortgage backed securities, and it all just kind of went on to bank balance sheets for the most part. Whereas now, what we're seeing is because fiscal deficits are so large and there's so much, you know, they did $1,200 checks to people, they did a week and extra federal unemployment for four months there going through the end of July. We're probably going to see more rounds of fiscal. We already have kind of a agreement between both the president and the Democrats and, and the Senate that they're going to do some sort of fiscal this year, most likely. Again, they just don't know what shape that's going to take yet. And then probably in the years ahead, we're going to see some infrastructure because it's going to take a long time to get kind of out of this unemployment mess. So a big difference that can actually have them quote unquote succeed in causing inflation is that instead of a lot of these QE winding up in asset prices and winding up in the financial system, a lot of it is getting injected more into the economy in the form of business loans that turn into grants and helicopter money to consumers, extra unemployment benefits, that sort of thing. So as we have a massive run up in deficits and the money supply. And as they lock treasury yields, you know, wherever they want them to be by buying as many treasuries as needed, we could start to see a more inflationary environment and currency devaluation compared to uh, harder assets like say precious metals.
3: Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you say, I mean, I I may be completely wrong here, but in order to get rid of all of that debt, shouldn't they aim or won't they aim for, you know what, we're going for 20% inflation we'll just, you know, make this, it's like a pain, right? Let, let's let's get over with it. Uh, have it. Have it quick and short, two, three, four years, real super high inflation, and then we start again. I think the challenge with that is that because
0: fee and currency is entirely a kind of a confidence game. It's all faith-based in, you know, the stability of that currency. So we have situations now where they're doing QE, but they don't want to call it debt monetization. For example, even though in many countries now most of the sovereign bond issuance is being you know accumulated by the central bank so but they don't want to refer to it as debt monetization uh so they prefer to kind of uh i think in their perfect world they want this to be somewhat gradual right so they their inflation the fed's inflation target is two percent right and that that inflation target uses a bunch of statistics to kind of understate real inflation and they've also talked about having that their finest symmetric inflation so instead of two percent being a ceiling it's more like because we went under that that target for several years, they're happy to go above that target for several years. Now, I think in their view, above that target means like, say, 3%. So if we look at it and say, okay, so they want 3% inflation, but that 3% still, it, it would understate what actually inflation is at that time. So it might be up to 4%, 5 6% for, for the cost of goods or higher. I think that's their ideal world is to kind of have yields at 1% or 2%. Uh, And then inflation at you know three percent or higher. Now, if you have kind of a sharp spike in inflation, it kind of depends how long that lasts. So I think in their mind, they also wouldn't mind to be like, "Oops, inflation had a big spike to eight percent this year, but we got it back down, and conveniently we we inflated away some of that debt." So you could have mid-single digit kind of sustained inflation with an occasional spike, especially in a yield curve control environment where they don't they don't raise rates to to stop inflation, but that could quickly get out of control if the global investors lose confidence in the currencies and bonds. So just the way that the whole system structured, I don't think they want a really sharp inflation. I think they and they want to kind of taper, but that's always harder to do in practice than in theory.
1: Yeah, maybe just as a, as a, as a quick comment, we were talking to Jim Piango also on this series, and, and he said something quite interesting, right? Because so far it seems like you know, the central banks have been pretty much in control to a large extent. But what he did say was that the bond markets are way bigger than the Fed. But at the moment, they're not speaking with the same voice. So when the bond vigilantes, as he called them, start to really get in tune, there's just no way that the Fed will be able to control that. And also, to your point about inflation, yeah, and to your point more, it's about, okay, well, let's take three years of 20% inflation. Well, it kind of assumes that you can control that, but I just don't think you can. I mean, at some point you lose control, and that's probably
3: not something they want to to risk. I guess it's a question of, um, like, like Lynn was saying, it's, it's all a relative game. All the other countries, all the other major currencies may be doing it at the same time, in which case it isn't that painful. If only one country is doing it, if only, say, the U.S. were running 20% inflation, but none of the other countries would, well, that's a big problem for the U.S., But if everybody is in a super high inflationary environment, then because it's a relative game in terms of currencies, maybe it's something that you can get through. I mean, you know, I don't know. The the thing about, you know, 2% inflation to me is kind of like, yeah, compound that for 10 years, you're getting, I don't know, 25% or something like that. Does that really solve the problem? If we have 25% less debt 10 years from now, I don't think that solves the problem in any shape or form. If you don't want to default... If you really want to get rid of the debt and don't leave it as a burden to generations to come, it really needs to get way, way, way down. And you don't do that with 2%. Yeah,
0: that's my base case is that we're going to see higher than 2% inflation over the next decade. But how high I think is going to kind of, you know, I think if it gets much higher than that, we're going to see kind of these big volatile periods where you could have spikes of inflation and then decreases in inflation. If you look back in the 1920s and 30s, when all the, the major sovereigns, reduce their gold pegs. That's generally what we saw back then is instead of just one country reducing their currency, we saw all the majors reducing it. So the dollar, the yen, the Swiss franc, the pound, uh, they all reduced their currencies by varying amounts to gold. Switzerland reduced it one of the least, whereas like France and Japan reduced it more. So it was, it was still somewhat of a relative game, but they all diminished their currency significantly. So I do think we're going to see pretty significant currency devaluation by the time that 2030 comes around let's call it now that can take a couple different forms right so we could have for example a very large devaluation versus commodities and other hard assets whereas everyday prices uh, might not change a ton they might only go up 3 4 or 5% a year for a couple of years or we could see a more kind of 1970s environment where you have pretty high everyday inflation and I think that's going to depend on a lot of different variables. It's going to depend on supply chain. It's going to depend on policy response, could depend on election outcomes, all sorts of things where it's it's very hard to say like, okay, we're going to have 8% inflation five years from now, right? That's that's a very, it's more like looking at the direction and the trends and then kind of going from there and saying, you know, every year we kind of reevaluate, okay, what what are they doing now? What's happening in this situation? Uh, so my base case is is much higher than 2% inflation in this decade but i don't have really a ceiling for where we might get to
1: no and it's not like we don't have inflation right now we may not have official inflation but if i look at my health care costs every year yep. I mean, they go up uh quite a lot and uh and because other... you're
2: getting older, the nails
1: i know i know and my kids are as well but still it is kind of a little bit deceptive when we talk about one or two percent uh, deflation or yep. uh, inflation and also the way europe calculates inflation doesn't take into account shelter so there's no housing costs Yep. in the number either. So it's a little bit um, of a jungle. Let me, I just want to circle back to some of the things you mentioned. I mean, you mentioned Ray Dalio. So just wanted to ask you a little bit about, um, I mean, he I think he's come out recently to say that he thinks we will get into a depression, actually. He does obviously want to clarify what he means by depression, but minus 10% GDP, et cetera, et cetera. He thinks we're there if, you know, or we'll be there. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, of course, you mentioned these debt, long-term debt cycles where he's also done a lot of work on this. And, and of course, we have other cycles in general. You talk about the business cycle, but we have also war cycles, right? And even though we say right now, well, okay, we don't maybe envisage a world war or something large. We have people like Nouriel Rubini who definitely believes that we're going to be, or the U.S. is going to be in a hot war with Iran before the election. We have uh, North Korea, South Korea that seems to be hotting up. We have Taiwan and China. You mentioned India and China. I mean, it's not like there isn't the potential for war. And then on top of that, we have this other cycle that we've talked about on this podcast, which of course is uh, is kind of a demographic uh, cycle based on uh, the work from uh, Neil Howe and, and Bill Strauss in terms of the generational turnings. And we are in a fourth turning according to their work. And obviously they wrote it 30 years ago and it's been spot on really and often these cycles they actually end in war I don't think there are many examples where it didn't end in a big conflict so do you take that into to
0: your uh, perspective when you look at the world? I certainly thing is a to consider and I think Hal's work's been great because you know his, his uh, fourth turnings tend to coincide with the kind of the popping of these long term debt cycles so I don't, I don't think that's a coincidence right, right. so And now that we've had this big COVID thing, so this huge kind of global pandemic, even more impactful is the actual government shutdowns because that's, in order to control the pandemic, all these different countries have kind of experimented in different ways, like a lockdown the whole country, or in many cases, Asian countries have been able to kind of only do partial lockdowns because they've had more experience with pandemics and they've kind of their population's more kind of apt to self-quarantine in a way while still keeping things functional. In the US, we've kind of been hit or missed depending on certain areas. So, and some countries like Sweden have elected to stay open more. Uh, so we've had kind of experiment to see how these different countries handle the the pandemic and how seriously they take it. So we already kind of have our that's in some ways it's more of our war event, right? Because we have the biggest economic shock since world war ii essentially and the biggest deficits globally since world war ii now whether or not that ever translates into a hot war later this decade i think that's you know there's a lot of variability there so one deterrent is that many of these countries are nuclear powers so the whole cold war never really ended in a hot war it just kind of burned itself out so i think we're certainly entering a period where the us and china are more in a cold war situation and whether or not that translates into hot wars in the middle east or proxy wars like that that could be kind of kind of considered a proxy war. Or if we have more India and China skirmishes, both of those are nuclear powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's certainly a ton of risk there if we see hot war among these countries. So my emphasis is less on the geopolitics. So something I always kind of keep in mind and I follow certain people that kind of specialize in that area. But I do think that kind of leads back to the point of countries wanting to localize their supply chains more. Because mm-hmm. the worst situation you want to be in is that a fifth of your supply chains are in your adversary's country, right? So you don't want to rely on, on masks from China. If you're in a contest with China in a great war struggle, right? So even if it's not a hot war, if it's a cold war, you still don't want most of your medicines made in your cold war antagonist. So those reshoring of supply chains can be quite inflationary because as you pointed out, we've had very uneven inflation. So things like healthcare, education, services in general, things you can't outsource, we've had pretty high inflation. And if you look at, say, the money supply, right? So over the past decade, the money supply, broad money supply in the US has increased by about 7% per year on average. Now, if we were having this conversation last year, I would have said it was 5 or 6%. But because we had a massive 25% increase in the money supply just in the past six months, that 10-year rate has already increased to 7 or 8%. So we've had... High monetary base inflation, but it hasn't really translated into a ton of prices because some of those prices were offset by technology and offshoring. So things like televisions, phones, and any sort of devices in general have gone down. Commodities have been in a a pretty cheap decade because we had a ton of exploration in the past decade and we've kind of had this period of excess supply. So we've had pretty cheap commodities, pretty cheap electronics, uh, all these offshoring. So if we start to kind of enter a period of higher commodity prices, and a period of reshoring some of the supply chains, that kind of puts a, a bottom in how much deflation we can get in those areas. We could have inflation in those areas, while we also have high inflation in some of those services areas. So that's why I think the 2020s, uh, in addition to the amount of money printing that's happening, is that we have a, a reshoring effect. And I think together, that could be pretty inflationary.
2: Yeah, I guess the other thing that, that's that gone up in value is is housing. And as an asset but also the kind of cost of housing which is another yeah. one of these things you can't offshore you can't go and live in china yeah. um you have to live in in new york or or near london in my case or or uh, you know in, in switzerland and, and uh, germany and the other guys so it's always interesting to think um about the the likely portfolio that one should have if you have some expectation about the future. So if you want to put together a portfolio you think will be protected against inflation you can you can do it a couple of different ways one way is to go and look at past inflationary periods And so what assets did well in you know in the 1970s for example or even further back into the early 1940s the other thing you can you can do i guess is to try and reverse engineer from these ideas and say well i, I think there's going to be inflation in 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 these things which you know were offshored and therefore that brought the costs down and then if they are reshored so you know a, a principles first approach if you like what are the main differences between those two approaches and what, what kind of different answers would, would they give you? This is a very long and complicated way of basically asking you, given you know, this current inflationary period that's coming, you know, what assets would you advise using to, to potentially hedge against that, given the nature of it may be quite different from what we've seen in the past?
0: Yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty bullish on precious metals and commodities more broadly. So specifically around late 2018, I turned bullish on gold because we saw the growth the top of the growth cycle. So even though GDP continued to grow in 2019, we had a much slower period of growth. And so uh, we also had gold was pretty cheap and had some positive trend signals. So I I turned bullish on gold then and throughout this cycle we've had we've had dips and, and, and rallies along the way. but I continue to see this as part of a long-term trend that gold, silver are going to do very well in the 2020s even though they'll have they'll have big corrections along the way, most likely. And then commodity producers, I've been uh, more hesitant on until very recently. So I've been sticking to some of the most conservative commodity producers, because even though I considered that we're probably looking forward to inflation in the coming decade, I also was, my analysis was showing that we're probably at the at the, towards the end of a business cycle. So as things were slowing down in 2019, I was saying, okay, we have to kind of separate durations here. So I'm bullish on commodities long-term. But I'm worried that we're going to get a, a, a drop in the near term. And so, of course, we had COVID come along and that we had a b- bigger drop than I, I would have guessed. I wouldn't have expected negative oil prices you know, back in 2019. So going forward now, I'm more broadly bullish for the long term on commodities, uh, including copper producers, all the different kind of uh, metals that are useful for solar panels, electric vehicles, electrical grid, because People often talk about renewable energy, which is a shift essentially from oil to metals because electric vehicles, solar panels, electrical grid, they all use more copper, silver, nickel, battery metals, all those different kind of commodities. And we have not had a lot of exploration. So I like to combine the present and the past when looking at how these play out. So we know from the past that inflationary environments, scarce assets do pretty well. So that's gold, silver, commodities. Now in the 1940s, you had an exception because gold was pegged to the dollar. So gold in nominal terms did not really appreciate in the dollar, uh, but we had silver go up uh, pretty significantly. We had other commodities go up, and of course in the 1970s when they were all depegged, we had a very strong commodity cycle. So I do expect that a broad basket of commodities and uh, high-quality commodity producers should do pretty well throughout the 2020s. I think real estate is more hit or miss. So we could have, uh, you know, city real estate is very expensive, whereas In the U.S., for example, a lot of suburban real estate is still pretty reasonably priced. So for investors that can get a very low long-term fixed rate mortgage on a decent home, I think that could be a decent hedge against inflation. Whereas like a, a really expensive penthouse in Manhattan, for example, is unlikely to maybe have that kind of hedge, especially if people want to kind of move out of cities a little bit. So that's kind of my view going forward is that we look at the past to see what is generally considered an inflationary hedge. Uh, and then now we have this environment where we want, we want to have similar assets, but it's always useful to pay attention to what's going on in that specific metal. Is, is that metal kind of an exception to the rule or can we consider it part of something that's going to do well? There's also Bitcoin nowadays. There's kind of scarce digital assets that are you know, pretty controversial that people can dabble in. So I think the same sort of things will do well, but it's always a little bit different.
3: Not my intention to put you on the spot here. Do you have a price target for gold? Where do you think could it go?
0: Not a specific price target, but I do expect to see probably over three thousand by the end of the decade, and that's kind of a a lower end target. So it really kind of depends, because I don't, I don't uh, predict sentiment, right? So I kind of, I have a couple models that compare gold to the money supply and other metrics. So I do think we're going to see notably higher gold throughout the next ten years. So I would expect to see probably a doubling, or probably at least 3000 in dollar terms. But there are kind of tail scenarios that could seem much higher than that, especially if momentum people get into it, or if we have a more significant, more rapid currency devaluation.
3: We're definitely in it. (laughs) We, the momentum people. Uh, So yeah, cool. I mean, you know, if it goes that way, uh, we'll, we'll probably be happy, definitely given our current position. But so where do you think... In, in, in that same context, the electro dollar, aka Bitcoin, is going to go. And, you know, there's, I guess there's, you know, many, many different schools of thought. I mean, one of them being it's digital gold, but you need a socket and it's kind of like this new thing, it's crypto. But then, so that's all the upside, right? And it's, 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 it has 21 million coins and that's about it. There's no inflation built into the model and into the algorithm. So it's a scarce asset and it may be a storehold of wealth. But uh, what is that thing going to be worth if a central bank, say the Fed, decides to come up with its own Fed coin, right? And say, no, 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 this is now our Fed Bitcoin crypto thing. Forget about this other thing. Is it still going to be a storehold of wealth then?
0: So my view on Bitcoin has changed a little bit over the past couple of years. So I started officially covering it in 2017. We had that pretty big run up in in, uh, cryptocurrencies in general. And because I had tons of readers ask me, like, hey, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? And I'm like, okay, fine. I got like 20 of these emails or 50 of these emails. I'll I'll start writing an article. So I covered it around the the autumn of 2017. And the price was in the upper 6,000s at the time. And I analyzed it from a couple different points of view, either kind of valuing it as a medium of exchange or valuing it as a store of value. Because at the time... Both of those were narratives that more and more people were, were going to supposedly use Bitcoin for transactions, but that also it was like digital gold. So I'm like, okay, let's let's take each of these scenarios and kind of play out how it is. So I determined that it was most likely overvalued as a medium, medium of exchange, but potentially reasonably valued as a store of value. If we compared it to, for example, how large Bitcoin's market cap is compared to gold. So if, if The global kind of investor community wants to put a quarter of a percent of their net worth collectively in bitcoin what would the market cap have to be or what if they want to put a half percent or what if it reaches 10 percent of the market cap of gold things like that so if this become if this actually takes off how big could the market cap get combined with the fact that the number of coins is scarce i analyzed it a couple different ways and i ended up concluding at the time with kind of a neutral to bearish outlook i didn't call it a bubble but i also decided not to invest my own money at the time and i didn't really want to play that at the time and one big reason was because even though bitcoin is scarce right there's never going to be more than 21 million coins the number of cryptocurrencies is not scarce so anyone can create a cryptocurrency whereas precious metals in addition to each one being pretty scarce there's only a handful of precious metals right so there's each one's an element we can't just come up with new precious metals so Each one's scarce, and there's a scarce number. Whereas cryptocurrencies, each one has their own program scarcity, but anyone can make one. And at that time, we were seeing the rise of a lot of altcoins, and we were also seeing the hard fork in Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is splitting. And so it kind of is like, okay, these could all dilute. Uh, So even though you could have overall cryptocurrency market cap increase, you could have a lot of dilution so that the per coin value of all these different cryptocurrencies doesn't do much. Now, over the next two and a half years we had a pretty volatile environment so we you know i started that analysis in the upper six thousands by the end of the year it, it had that big run all the way up to twenty thousand roughly and then it collapsed to like under four thousand then it bounced back to like twelve thousand then it, it collapsed earlier this year and it got down to really low, low levels again like four or five thousand or so and in april of this year bitcoin had done kind of a round trip so after two and a half years. It was it was back in the upper 6000's. So I'm glad I didn't invest back then because it kind of went nowhere for two and a half years. But we've seen a couple of things strengthen. So we've had a decline in altcoins. So Bitcoin's market share has regained levels compared to 2017. So Bitcoin's network effect has strengthened. So instead of Bitcoin being diluted by a lot of these other coins, Bitcoin uniquely is retaining a lot of market share. And also we've seen a settling of these hard forks. So we had Bitcoin retain almost all of the market cap from these hard forks. We also have things like Robin Hood, Square, PayPal just announced uh, all these different kind of platforms uh, include cryptocurrencies and particularly Bitcoin. So some of them are Bitcoin only. Other ones include trading for uh, multiple cryptocurrencies. So I think Bitcoin uniquely has become kind of established as uh, sort of a digital speculative store of value for many people. And it has a very kind of a well-designed protocol. So my view is since April 2020, I have been bullish on Bitcoin. And I I consider it a, a more volatile speculative asset, so I wouldn't allocate to it as much as I would, say, gold. But I am bullish on that going forward. And there are some tail risks from governments trying to ban it. So I don't consider something like a Fed coin to be a real threat to it, because even a a central bank cryptocurrency, even though it could have similar traits, it wouldn't be scarce, right? They control the protocol so they can create all sorts of extra currency, whereas Bitcoin is decentralized and inherently scarce. And that's part of what makes it unique. It also has a really well-designed protocol where it's got the halving event that happens. So it has a slower supply over time and it has uh, difficulty adjustments. It's a very well-designed protocol. So, my concern is not kind of competing central bank currencies. My concern would be government attempts to ban it or disallow it, which could reduce, kind of makes it a black market item rather than kind of a broad asset. So that's that's kind of the tail risk I'm watching.
3: Yeah, it, it, it may do that. But, you know, one of the things that I also see is Bitcoin now has kind of like there there's a tribe behind it. I mean, there there's a bunch of people that really think, you know, this is it millennials, younger type of guys, you know, they're like, you know, this is our thing. Even if government came in and said, yeah, you know, we don't want you dealing in that stuff anymore. It's now illegal. Its value isn't going to be zero. Yeah. Because, you know, they can't turn off the internet. So yep. It's always going to be there. And there is now a couple of people that kind of like they've got infected with the Bitcoin virus and they're not going to let it go. Yeah. And so if there's only 21 million coins, what I always say is, you know, there's a greater risk not being exposed to Bitcoin than it is being exposed to Bitcoin because at least your downside is defined at zero, but your upside is completely undefined. It could be anything.
0: Yeah, that's how I view it. So I think it's ever since my view in early 2020 of becoming more firmly bullish, it seems odd to me not to have say one percent in Bitcoin because yes. you know the market cap right now is fluctuates between one and one and two hundred billion, but gold's market cap is like ten trillion based on estimates for how much gold above ground gold exists in the world and what its current price is. It's like roughly eight, nine, 10 trillion. Bitcoin is still a small market cap. It's still a very low investor allocation to Bitcoin. Gold is like a large cap store of value. Bitcoin is a smaller cap speculative store of value. So it's not hard to see Bitcoin eventually hitting a $1 trillion market cap. And it's not my, you know, I'm not saying it will, but I'm saying I wouldn't be utterly shocked if one day it did. So putting say a 1% allocation of portfolio in a Bitcoin, it could go to zero or, you know, it could, it could say its value gets cut in half. It could kind of diminish, it, you know, I don't think it would ever actually reach zero, but it could go down significantly, but you've wasted almost none of your capital. Whereas you could have another one of these massive run up, especially, you know, we've had the recent halving. So we have supply kind of getting low and low. There are people that just exactly. never sell their coins. So I'm pretty bullish over the next call it two to three years to see how this kind yeah. of, how this plays out.
3: Let's not forget. I mean, the government has made the possession of gold illegal before. Yep. So if, if they make the possession of Bitcoin and dealing in Bitcoin illegal, maybe they're doing the same for gold again, and that would have a much much greater impact.
0: And that's interesting because back in the 1930s, when the U.S. made possession of gold mostly illegal, some people turned it in, but a lot of people just held it. Right. So it wasn't a very enforceable policy. Like they didn't go door to door with guns trying to get everyone's gold. They just kind of, kind of anyone who had gold. A lot of them just kind of went underground and just kind of never mentioned it again right so with bitcoin because it's it's encrypted it's decentralized a lot of that could just kind of go underground and you know they don't turn in their bitcoin so i do think bitcoin is not unique in potentially being banned and it also has some resistances to being banned so i do think banning of it could affect its price negatively potentially i don't think it would make it go to zero especially because. Not every country is going to ban it, right? So it's all, it's a globally, you know, it's mined worldwide, it's traded worldwide. So it's got a lot of resilience.
1: I mean, I take your point about that, but I'm pretty sure I read some articles last week about China actually confiscating people's accounts that had Bitcoin. So, okay, we may not think that that's going to happen in, in our side of the world, but it's certainly happening elsewhere, it seems like. The other thing, I mean, I I get the point about Bitcoin, and I can see the attraction of it, and same with gold. What worries me a little bit is that there's so many people who agree that gold is going to fly and Bitcoin is going to fly, and you know, as long as gold hasn't broken that 1923 level, which is the high in 2011, but I would say this could be a, just a one big correction. And and if I'm not mistaken about, I don't, I'm sure you do this uh, because you seem to be doing an incredible amount of detailed research, but and I had this discussion with a client of mine yesterday about commodities in general. You know, should you have it as a buy and hold type strategy? or in our discussion, of course, he was thinking about it whether it's better to have it as a kind of a trend following, long short type in investment because if I'm not mistaken, you may know this better than I do. but if I look if I think about gold cycles and it could be the same for other commodities, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them are a little bit like the interest rate cycle about 35 years but actually most of that time so about 20 plus years of that time is spent going down not going up and so i think sometimes people i mean you if you time it perfectly with any investment you're golden so to speak but i think there is a i think there is a little bit of a misconception that these things actually just go up and up and up over time i mean i think history shows us that they spend more time going down than they go up and and last time we had this perfect commodity situation and i know commodities in general have been going down for the last few years so i'm not comparing the time but i certainly remember when jim rogers came out with all these long only commodity indices right at the peak everybody poured in but it's just been a very hard investment to uh, to sit with for the last 20 years or whatever it is. But it's interesting. One thing I wanted just to come back to, I know we're jumping around a little bit in terms of this massive amount of debt we have in, in, in the world. What about debt jubilees? Is that something that you've studied or have an opinion about? I mean, is that the only way we can get out of this mess, so to speak?
0: Sure. I guess to answer your earlier question first, I do think a trend following approach works particularly well with commodities because they tend to have this more boom-bust cycles. right? So anyone who bought gold in 1980 during that previous massive spike took a very long amount of time before they yeah. made their investment back again. So I think there's a case we made that people can have, say, a small allocation of, to physical precious metals at all times. Sure. But then if they want to kind of allocate an extra amount to it, like a more specific active decision, I think you do have to take into account intermediate signals. So for example... Gold historically tends to trade very uh, inversely correlated to real interest rates. So, a lot of those really bad periods for gold was because it reached very high valuations and then real interest rates went up. You know, when Paul Volcker raised interest rates and, and killed inflation, we had a very long period where treasuries and bank accounts provided you with a much higher return than inflation. So, that was an opportunity cost to owning something that is scarce but doesn't provide a yield. So, in that sort of high real yield environment, generally precious metals and To some extent, other commodities don't do very well. Whereas in an environment with low or negative real yields, which is currently what we're in and what I think we're going to be in for much of the 2020s, I do think gold is likely to do well. I do think it's it's certainly possible we could have some resistance. Like when we started to bump into previous highs, that could be a big psychological uh, thing to try to get through. So I do think we could have pretty significant corrections along the way. But I do think this is a very good fundamental environment for precious metals. But I do think a, a trend following approach can reduce risk of of kind of being on the wrong side of a really major downtrend. And then, to your later question about debt jubilees, historically, debt jubilees have been common in many places of the world. So going back to Greece and the whole Mesopotamia, literally thousands of years of of debt jubilee history. Now, in more modern times, it's often taken the form of currency devaluation mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to outright debt jubilee. So, We've had things like yield curve control or or de-pegging a currency. So it was, you know, backed by gold and then it's not anymore. So for example, the dollar has gone from one twentieth of an ounce of gold to what is it today? Almost one 1,800. So we've had a very significant devaluation of these currencies. So it's almost like we have a mini debt jubilee every couple of decades with a big inflationary cycle. So I think debt jubilees are something to look out for in this 2020s period. But I think a lot of them could take the form of currency devaluations so that you basically do a a soft debt jubilee rather than a nominal one. So if you look in, say, the 1940s or the 1970s, anyone holding treasuries basically provided the U.S. government with a debt jubilee because it didn't default, right, but it lost purchasing power. Mm -hmm. So generally in the case of both the 1940s and the 1970s, Anyone who bought treasuries at the beginning of the decade lost about a third of their purchasing power by the end of the decade because those treasury yields underperformed inflation. And of course, it was bumpy along the way, especially in the 1970s. But a 10-year period of negative returns is very poor. And basically what they did was they provided the government with a partial debt jubilee. The main thing to watch out for, in my view, is currency devaluation. But then I wouldn't totally rule out periods of outright you know, debt forgiveness. Mm, sure.
1: Rob Moritz, obviously being mindful of Lynn's time. One more round of questions, Rob. what's your,
2: your? Yeah, so I'll take the opportunity to ask about something completely different. One of the things I found most interesting after 2008, over the last 10 years generally, is we talk mostly about things that I guess are on most people's radar, like inflation, Bitcoin. Even if we don't know what's going to happen, they're on everyone's radar. But a lot of the stuff that came out of the last crisis was things that most people weren't, really weren't aware of. It was stuff really buried deep within the financial plumbing, if you like. So I think you mentioned the repo crisis as, as one example. Another example, which I think you've written about is the dollar shortage. And as a result, central banks had to set of these dollar swap lines during the last crisis, where do you see those things that are lurking today that people haven't really thought about because they're not on people's radar. They're not obvious, but can actually prove quite nasty and unpleasant.
0: So it's always one of those things where we always get surprised. So, you know, anything I list now, there could be something totally else. So I would not have guessed, for example, a pandemic in 2020. I had been writing about how, you know, with high debt levels, we're very exposed to some sort of shock, but I could not have predicted the actual shock would have been a global pandemic coming out of China, for example. So that's always kind of that just unexpected thing. So I think if we look at how much enthusiasm there is for precious metals or bitcoin and stuff. A lot of that still tends to be pretty niche, right? So many uh pensions, big money portfolios, institutional portfolios, common investors with 60/40 portfolios, there's not a lot of interest in in that space. There's not a lot of interest in precious metals or commodities or bitcoin. We have some of these kind of early people that's saying like looking really long term out and starting to highlight these things and we have people that are more concerned about the financial system wanting to buy these things. And we have kind of uh, trend followers starting to get into things like gold. But we don't have, for example, the Robinhood crowd flooding into gold stocks. I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen years down the line after the earlier trend followers already got in. So they they benefit from that. We don't, for example, have a lot of retail enthusiasm about precious metals, Bitcoin, things like that. We have, It's more niche. So my view is that some of the big shocks out there are basically around currency devaluation. So I don't think a lot of people expect that treasuries might provide a significant negative real return over the next decade. I don't think that's, that's on a lot of people's radar, even though it's, it's on the radar of some sophisticated investors and some niche investors. I don't think that's something that the average 60, 40 portfolio or pension system is necessarily considering, or if they're considering it, they're allocating a small percentage against that possibility rather than fleeing bonds, for example. And then in addition, because we've had such weak exploration in commodities, particularly non-energy commodities, like especially the metals, I do think there's a significant risk of supply shortages in certain metals by the end of this decade. So that could be copper, that could be some of the other ones. And even energy, you talked before about some of the tail risks. If you see more military action in the world, those supply chains for oil can be disrupted. We saw that happen in Saudi Arabia, where they were attacked and they they lost energy output. So I do think we could see a period where we have more commodity scarcity this decade. So I think there's some of the tail risks to look out for is either a certain commodity scarcity or kind of how significantly we could have currency devaluations.
3: Maybe not really a question, more an observation on my part, but you've just mentioned the pensions and let's see if we can agree on that. But I think some of them probably would like to flee from the bonds, but they cannot. They're, they're not allowed to do yep. it. Their asset liability management frameworks don't permit them to do it. Regulatory boundaries don't permit them to do it, right? And they've given out guarantees that they can no longer meet. Now they're talking about leveraging up their bond exposures, right? So I regularly get contacted by providers of savings and retirements products, and they tell me, hey, Maritz, here's the thing, you know, here's a 20, 25-year product, you'll get 90% of your money back, and you'll get a lifelong pension. So, so what are you going to do with my money? Well, we're going to put you know 80% of that stuff in bonds. Well, what type of bonds? Well, you know, government bonds and you know, investment grade type of stuff, which essentially yields, yields nothing or negative. I was saying, I, I don't want to have anything of that type of stuff because if there is any type of inflation on a 20, whatever, 25-year duration investment, that stuff gets just slaughtered, right? And you know, in maybe 20 years' time. If an inflationary period is uh, is over us by then, it's worth nothing. So no thanks, but no thanks. I'm really not interested in being long bonds, you know, apart from my trend following portfolio, which is long bonds for as long as it needs to be. But, you know, it can change in an instant. But for like, you know, saying, yeah, I'm, I'm happy, I'm, I want to be long a pension and I'm going to be 20, 25 year long bonds and I'm not going to touch it. I think that's just ridiculously stupid.
0: No, I agree. I think uh, there are a lot of pensions that have to own bonds. And I think that's it's kind of models that have been based over the past couple of decades. We've been in this big disinflationary trend. We have had a 40-year global cycle in lower and lower yields. So bonds have had a really great run. But now that bond yields are equal or less than inflation and debt levels are so high that they can't really raise rates, I do think there's a a pretty big risk these institutions of having so much bond exposure. And they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Because they, on one hand, they're supposed to invest conservatively, which historically meant bonds. But on the other hand, they've moved into equities, especially in the US, they've put a lot into hedge funds and other private investments. And as you point out, some of them are levering up now. So CalPERS is taking on leverage to try to meet their target, which is Taking out leverage because you feel like you have to is never a good sound investment strategy, right? So there are cases where a sophisticated strategy could use a certain amount of leverage appropriately, but levering up purely because you feel you have to is a way to blow up your portfolio. So we're kind of seeing that at the pension level now. So I do think it's a significant risk for any of these kind of institutions that have obligations they have to meet. A lot of them have 7% rate of return targets. right? And so I think we're likely to see pension failures, and or government bailouts of some of these programs. But that can lead to further currency devaluation if you're basically printing money to bail out a pension.
3: That's right, right. So I could step back and say, oh, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm just going to be long bonds because if something really bad happens, it's going to be bailed out by the government. But if that happens, well, whatever it is that they're bailing out, is going to be worth less yep. because they've bailed it out with so much debt and so much money that it's just not going to be having the same purchasing power. So again, no, I'm not going to do it.
0: Yep. That's why I prefer to focus more on harder assets this decade. I think that's going to probably be a pretty uh, good way to get defense against that sort of environment, especially if you combine it with a trend following model or other kind of approach to value it so that you know to get out of certain spikes or bubbles in those commodities.
1: You know, I don't think it could have been a better ending to our conversation than you mentioning trend following, us being trend followers by nature. So uh, with that, We thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We really do appreciate it, as I'm sure all our listeners do. And by the way, make sure you follow Lynn's work on Twitter and on lynnalden.com, of course. From Rob, Morris, and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro Miniseries. In the meantime, be well.
0: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged.